Congress gets a bad rap. This has always frustrated me, how his epithet for all these centuries has been doubting Thomas. First of all, I don't think it's really doubt here that he's showing. But more than that, here's the rub for me. The rest of the disciples struggled to trust the goodness of the resurrection also. Everyone did. Back on that first day, Mary Magdalene had told them that she had seen the risen Christ. At nightfall, though, where we find them in today's gospel, they remain locked in the house, afraid, not celebrating, not out hollering this amazing news to the world, locked inside. Jesus comes to them himself, and they believe, and still they, they're not fully on board yet. A week later, they are still hiding behind closed doors. Nonetheless, when, when Thomas returns from wherever he's been, they do fill him in. We don't hear what they all had said to Mary, how skeptical they may have been at first. What we do hear is Thomas longing for more. He wants to see. He wants to touch. He needs that physical experience before he can join them in believing. It's a a request for help that has given Thomas a bad reputation for so long. He's, he's dismissed as being faithless on account of it. What I hear in and around his questions, his words, though, is, is this simple set of questions. They're different from those we hear the disciples asking earlier in the Gospels. Things like, who can sit at his right hand? Or, whose fault is it when someone is born blind? Or, why is he talking with outcasts? Thomas's questions come closer to Mary's as she wrestles at the tomb. There, she asks plainly, where have they put him? Where have they taken his body? It is a, a precise longing, a, a request to come close to God's body. And this is where Thomas lands. This is his response to the news of the resurrection. Where's his body? I have to touch it. His words are shamed as evidence that he doubts God. But what if the questions are actually good? When our whole world has been turned upside down, sometimes we're not only brought to our knees, but led to ask new questions. Paul Kalanithi was a brilliant neurosurgeon finishing his residency at Stanford when at 
age 36, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. It was shocking and absurd. He'd never smoked. He knew more about health than virtually everyone. Being a doctor at Stanford, so much of his life had revolved around questions. His research projects and patients' cases created this constant cycle of academic and diagnostic questions. And then came his own results. I didn't know Paul. I read his book. It's called When Breath Becomes Air. I read it a few years ago, almost in one sitting. It was that kind of book. And what struck me as I was enveloped by his story was how the nature of his questions changed. It's clear from the time you pick up the book that it was published after his death. The end of the story is a given right from the beginning. And yet, so much life emerges between diagnosis and death. It's the story of a doctor getting sick, of a doctor becoming the patient. Even more than that, though, this, this doctor writes the story of changing the questions he has so thoroughly been trained to ask. When Paul's life is upended, he's led to examine the very paradigm of medicine that has formed him, not out of spite or distrust, but from a place I saw as holy and vulnerable inquisition. Finding ourselves in that time when there's not much left to lose, we can decide to plumb the depths. This is, I think, what's happening with Thomas. He has lost everything. The life he signed up for and, and had given everything to follow. His hope, his beloved teacher. All those pieces were wrapped up together, and so it's all been sunk together, too, with Jesus' death. I wonder if if going so far into the pit is what makes it possible for Thomas to reach, to ask, to, to even demand of God that which he so desperately needs. In order to really take in this promise of resurrection told to him by his friends, Thomas realizes that he needs to experience it. He has to touch God's body with his own first. Jesus is clear then in his actions and in his words that he doesn't think less of Thomas for this struggle. He returns to that house again just for Thomas's sake. He doesn't shame him or lecture him. Jesus hears Thomas's questions and his needs, and he responds. He says, here, reach out, touch me, 
Feel the resurrection for yourself. Jesus honors the wrestling. He affirms the questions. It can be terrifying to change the script like this, to deviate from where others have set up camp and dig deep where we are honestly wrestling and grappling. If we are truthful in asking them, our questions will fundamentally demonstrate what we don't yet know or have or understand. That's the point. They display our lacking. And in a world where having it figured out has been prized for as long as these stories have been told, manifesting such weakness can be terrifying. And still, Thomas gathers the courage to give voice to this need, to ask, to insist, seeming to hope even in his skepticism that he might be met there. In a wildly different scene, that of 21st century medicine rather than 1st century resurrection, I saw Paul Kalanithi navigating a similarly risky path. It is without question truly remarkable where scientific discovery has brought us. What diagnoses and cures are now possible that seemed so far beyond imagining not so long ago. And, and there, there is still, there is always more to learn there. As Paul got sicker, he started asking new questions. Questions about the quality of life about its meaning and value, questions that could not be quantified in statistics nor unpacked in conventional medical journals. Some of his ideas were resonant with the profound work of palliative care teams, but his questions pushed further. As I read on, he began probing the questions of what healing might really mean, what it was to find a cure or success. The conventional answers weren't holding up for him any longer. And in those questions, I realized, there was both liberation and connection for him and for his family. And for this anonymous reader, years later. These questions, any big and searching question posed about what matters most, these questions are a holy pursuit. They can knit us together. They offer the possibility of pulling us closer, both with one another and with God as we offer the need of our weakness and wait for one another and for God to respond.
These questions beg for relationship. They, they lay the groundwork for it, this implicit structure of give and take, of opening and then receiving. This, this doubt, so-called doubt, scorned for so long, it's really just the humble act of naming that we don't have it all figured out and looking towards our God and our kin for their wisdom, their connection, for a glimpse at their way in. And so thank God for Thomas, for his clarity in knowing what he needed and trusting God enough to demand this help. Thank God for Thomas's example, for his courage in making space for us to do the same. This doubt can be a blessing, his doubt and ours, if we will but honor it, lift it up, give voice to it through good questions. I trust that we will find grace in the response.